0: To get started, visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code PODCAST10 to get 10% off our essential membership for your first year. Enjoy the show.
1: I think it's very important to make decisions decisively and quickly, and if they turn out to be the wrong decisions, then you clean up the mess and you move on and you make the next decision. I think people who get sort of paralyzed by making decisions, like those are people that I don't get along with.
2: Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of My Life in Four Trades. Joining me today is former Wall Street trader and editor of The Daily Nap, Jared Dillian. Enjoy the conversation. Hi, Jared. Welcome to My Life in Four Trades.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
2: So before we get to your four trades, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? You know, what? where did you grow up? What were you like as a kid?
1: So I kind of moved around a lot when I was a kid. My dad was in the Coast Guard. Um, I lived in Alaska, actually. I lived in Kodiak, Alaska. I lived in Florida. I lived in New York City. There was, I spent a couple of years on Governor's Island because uh, that used to be a Coast Guard base, uh, and that was actually a great place to grow up. Then I'm For the rest of my childhood, I lived in um, the eastern part of Connecticut in Norwich, and I ended up going to the Coast Guard Academy for college, and I graduated from there uh, with a degree in math. And I did a tour on a 210-foot cutter out of Washington State, and then I worked in Intel in San Francisco, California, in the East Bay. And I was going to business school part time at the University of San Francisco. I also got a job on the P Coast, uh, clerking and options. Then I started at Lehman Brothers in 2001. Uh, I worked there for seven years, did index arbitrage and ETF trading, ran the ETF desk for four years, and stayed there until the bankruptcy. And after that, started my newsletter. Um, So
2: I'm I'm going to stop you there and jump in because I think it's so interesting. I mean, most you know, this is not. I don't know if there is a typical background for an investment banker, but that's so. That's such an interesting journey. I mean, being in the Coast Guard. Did you did you like that? Were you? Were, did you think, oh, this is this is great? I'm going to do this. Especially since your father did it.
1: Yeah. So I really wanted to be a pilot, um, but. I took one flight in a helicopter, and I was puking all over the place. And I, I like, actually I actually have a very weak stomach. I get, mo- I get motion sickness in the back of a cab, so I. It's like the Coast Guard was really a bad fit for me. Um, you know, I did when I was working in Intel. I actually did very well. I was like a star analyst. You know, I was because I was smart. But I, you know, any conveyance, if it was a boat or a plane or a helicopter, like I get sick. So,
2: so, so you had a a little a little peak maybe that. Sort of something analytical, something math, something number-oriented, would be something that you're interested in. But it sounds like you you took some of those classes while you were in the Coast Guard. So it sounds like you were kind of toying with the idea of finance.
1: Yeah, I mean, I kind of I kind of made that decision in my first tour that I was going to go work on Wall Street. Uh, and like you said, it was an unconventional background. Um, you know, the Wall Wall Street does get military people. Um, yeah. Like, especially now, you
2: know, especially now, there's like a, a real push for it now, but I think you know,
1: but back, you know, the back
2: in the day, maybe not.
1: But the Coast Guard Academy is very small, and a lot of people haven't heard of it, and then they get it mixed up with the Merchant Marine Academy and they don't know where it is, and you know, so it's kind of lost in translation. So, um,
2: and was money, uh, it, it was sort of finance money something that was. Talked about or played an important role in your childhood. You know, did you come from a family that invested or that knew about stocks?
1: No, not at all. So you know, on I I mostly grew up with my mom after my parents divorced, and mm-hmm. um, she worked in it. She worked at a nonprofit. Uh, most of that side of the family worked for the phone company, which was like Southern New England Telephone or something like that, and um, nobody invested. Um, People kept their money in the bank. They were all super cheap. I mean, this is Connecticut, right? So they're the cheapest people on earth. You have like these, Connecticut is filled with like 55-year-old women with these short little haircuts and yellow bean sweaters and turtlenecks and and like they leave like, you know, they get out the tip calculator when they go to a (laughs) a restaurant and they tip like exactly 18% to the penny. That good
2: old New England frugality. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So that's kind of what I grew up with. Like I did not grow up in a family of risk takers. Let's put it that way.
2: So it's interesting. You're, so your first trade is pretty early and one of your best. And it's, and it's when you're at this sort of pivotal point in your career, because you say it's, it was turning down a stint in the reserves and taking a job, that job at Lehman Brothers in the summer of 2001. What was it? You sort of said you weren't th- really thinking about staying in the Coast Guard. So was that a hard decision to make or were you like, I am out of here? What well, was the thinking it, around that trade?
1: It was it was a pretty easy decision. Like, here's here's the context. So, um, most people in the Coast Guard, when they get out of the Coast Guard, they stay in the reserves. Okay, uh, and they basically they drill one weekend a month. They get a little money. Mm. Uh, they get years towards retirement. They get health care. It's actually like financially, it's a pretty good deal. So, this is when I was working in Alameda, California. And I was in this office full of these intel people, and I had all these senior officers coming up to me. They're like, you really got to stay in the reserves. And I'm like, no, absolutely not. They're like, why not? And I said, because if something happens and I get called up, I'm going to lose my job at Lehman Brothers. Now, I had an offer at the time. I was going to start at Lehman. And they, they said, first of all, nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to happen. And second of all, your employer is required by law to hold your job for you until you get back. I'm like, it doesn't matter. It's Wall Street. Like, yeah, they might have a job for me, but I'm, I might end up in the back office or something. So, like, no. And this pressure that I was getting was relentless. It just Well, went they didn't on. want to
2: lose you because you were yeah. good at it, right? So, like, yeah. you know, they see one of their star players getting poached by – by another industry.
1: So, I mean, you know, hypothetically, I would have liked to have done it, but I just, I couldn't take the risk. And like, there was one guy in particular, his name was uh, uh, Ken Nagata. He was a uh, lieutenant commander. And, he, and every day he was at my desk trying to get me to join the reserves. And I was, I was like, fuck you. I'm not doing it. <laughs> like it's just, well, are, It just went, went are on you for ma- weeks. So
2: are you single or are you married at this point?
1: I was married. Yeah. Right. So you're talking about
2: not saying no to the Coast Guard to some, you know, some pretty good financial stability and taking this huge risk of moving to the East Coast with your wife to start an investment banking where you don't really know how it's going to go, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, but I was confident. But the thing is, is that, like, it wasn't, like, unpatriotic of me. I mean, like, I had already done my time. Like, I I owed five years after I finished the Academy. I did my five years, like – you know, I paid my debt. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't really like a matter of that. But what happened was is that – so I, I didn't join the reserves and I was out of the Coast Guard in May. And in September, 9-11 happens and all the reservists got called up. They all got called up. And they got called up for like six months to a year, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and you know, some of them were in operational roles, but a lot of them, I mean, they just, they, it was kind of like overkill. They called up everybody. So you had a lot of people that were just sitting in offices doing nothing, you know, like they Mm -hmm. were just like filling out forms and stuff. So, um, that would have totally destroyed my career because just pretend that happened and I came back in 2002. Well, now we're in the middle of a bear Uh market, yeah you know, like, like the worst bear market of all time. So.
2: And what was your impression, what were your first impressions of working in New York on the trading floor? Did it, was it what you thought it was going to be when you got there?
1: Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, You know, it was, it was funny because uh, when I was in California, like when I knew, when I learned that I got hired, I went out and bought three suits, okay? And there was a, I was living in Walnut Creek and there was a men's warehouse in Walnut Creek, so I went to men's (laughs) warehouse and- I spent 800 bucks on three suits. Two of them were 300 and one of them was 200. And like I I I get to the training floor and I'm like I am so out of place here. This is not even yeah. funny. Yeah. Um, but so I didn't And how were better.
2: the how was the environment? I mean this was because, you know, and it's it's sort of interesting that you get there and it's right before this event, which arguably changed everything, um, you know, and and the mood in the city and especially, you know, within the investment banking community that was so close to what happened as well. I mean, it was, you know, kind of a remarkable time. But did you did you fit right in with the culture on the trading floor? Yeah, and-
1: Absolutely. I did. Yeah. So we I mean, I started in a training program uh, in the MBA training program. So there was about 80 people in my class. And, you know, I made I made friends with this group of guys. We're still friends to this day. And we were just complete jackasses, you know, so <laughs> it was it was huge amounts of fun. Yeah, I fit. right. I was it was a much better fit for me culturally than the Coast Guard was. So
2: did you and did you sort of, um, you know, what lesson did you take away from that episode? You know, why why does that trade stick out to you? It's kind of it sounds like a real kind of sliding door moment because things could have turned out very differently if you hadn't stuck to your guns and resisted that pressure.
1: I mean, really, like, the lesson I take away from that is you you just, you have to stand your ground and just say no if people are pressuring you to do something that's not in your best interest. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, it clearly wasn't in my best interest. And, um, you know, they had their own selfish reasons for doing it, and I just said, no, I'm not going to do it, so.
2: Do you think that, the success of that informed because you made a you made a similar trade again in life when you left investment banking and started your own firm, which is also, you know, a leap of faith. Do you think the success of, you know, seeing how that first trade played out helped you make that decision as well?
1: Uh, yeah, I guess so. You know, I mean, I look, i'm not I'm not afraid of taking risk. You know, the second example that you talked about when I left Lehman, you know, I, I turned down a lot of money to stay at Barclays when Barclays bought Lehman. Uh, mm. I would have I got paid a ton of money, but um, every cell in my body was telling me that I had to leave, you know, because the job that I was in, the ETF job, was so stressful. Like, you know, uh, it's, it's really impossible to, to describe. But, you mm. know, after, after four years of doing that, I just I couldn't take another day. You know, Mm. so and I was excited about writing and I was, you know, perhaps overly optimistic in the beginning as to how well I was going to do with the newsletter. But, you know, it worked out. Because it
2: was during the great financial crisis that you decided to reinvent yourself, right? Yeah. And you say you don't come from a family of risk takers. Where did you get the sort of Uh,
1: courage to do that? Honestly, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, On my dad's side of the family, you know, he was in the Coast Guard, but er like most of that side of the family was doctors, you know, Um, so beats me.
2: Mm. When you say listen to your gut, what does that mean to you?
1: Uh, I listen to my gut all the time. Uh, Doesn't mean it's always right, but um, I tend to be – you know, I'm a tra- I'm basically, I'm a trader. I was, I was born to be a trader. I'm impulsive. I make decisions quickly. I think it's very important to make decisions decisively and quickly. And mm-hmm. if they turn out to be the wrong decisions, then you clean up the mess and you move on and you make the next decision. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I think people who get sort of paralyzed by making decisions, like those, are people that I don't get along with. You know, I just, I, I really make, I make very fast decisions and I make them decisively.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to LipsonAds.com now. That's L I B S Y N dot com. It's so
2: interesting. So the second trade that stands out to you is also one of your best, and that's shorting Amazon in 2013. So you you have this sort of decade of experience under your belt now. So where are you with your business? What's happening in your life? Are you are you writing the newsletter? What what are the what are the circumstances around this short?
1: Yeah, I've been doing the newsletter for about five years. So if you put this in context to the market, you know we came out of the financial crisis and. Um, you know, stocks have rallied quite a bit, but people are still pretty skeptical. And we're not all that far away from the dot-com bubble. So, you know, Amazon had run up a lot. And I remember I was sitting on the couch in 2013 and 60 Minutes did a a piece on Amazon. And it was the most bullish piece that you could possibly imagine. It was just big puff piece. And at the end of it, now keep in mind this is 9 years ago so it doesn't sound so crazy now but <laughs> that's when that's when Amazon unveiled their plan to deliver packages by drone right this is 2013 and uh, I said that's it that's a top I mean abs- it, you know absolutely so I went in and I wrote up a newsletter I did this whole bear case on Amazon and I was pounding the table on it I was like I had so much conviction um And I put the trade on. I basically – I did a risk reversal. I bought puts and sold calls, and Amazon went down, went down quite a bit. So I made some money, and I thought thought that I had called the top, and I thought that Amazon was going to go down 50% or more. So I held on to the trade, and then it went back up, and then it put in new highs, and I stopped myself out. Uh, and I basically, you know, I took the L in the newsletter and you know, I said, well, I was wrong. I only lost $10,000 on that trade. It, it was, you know, it's like one of my smallest losses of all time. The interesting thing about that whole episode is that I was pounding the table on it so much. My newsletter got forwarded like everywhere. And for years I was known as the guy that shorted Amazon. I was like the idiot that shorted Amazon. You know what I mean? (laughs) In fact, this was like two years ago. Uh, I, I, I'm friends with the guy in derivatives at a bank, and he was trying to get a, like a subscription for the desk at the bank, and the head of the desk was like, "Isn't that the guy that shorted Amazon?" <laughs> like
2: memories are long. <laughs> I know
1: this is like seven years later, so. Um, but you were uh, right before you were wrong. I was right before I was wrong, but that doesn't that doesn't really matter. What the the most important thing is is that I stopped myself out quickly because mm. as you know Amazon went to 2000 or whatever and if I got really stubborn about it I could have held that position and you know made a bigger fool out of myself and lost a lot of money and I stopped myself out very quickly it was one of the most disciplined things that I had done mm. so um you know and, and so that's really what I find interesting about this a lot of people consider that to be my worst trade I actually consider it to be one of my best trades you know
2: because you were able to kind of Put your conviction aside and actually protect yourself. When did you know that you had to throw in the towel and say, I I need to stop myself out? What made you do that? What made you sort of have? Because I think sometimes people have the discipline, but they just don't like, they have that voice, but they don't listen to it.
1: Yeah, I guess that's just it. I listened to the voice. Like I was watching the stock and it was going up every day, every day, every day. And I said, this isn't stopping. You know, I just, you know, I just got to get out. So.
2: Is it hard yeah. to do that?
1: Uh, I've actually gotten worse at it over time. I would say, <laughs> I actually have. I sort of have a higher opinion of my abilities now than I did back then, and I, I, I actually I, uh, my discipline is worse now. I think. So.
2: Uh, that's the thing. The more you know. Yeah. The more you can convince yourself that things are going to turn in your favor.
1: But uh, but if you think about it, like you know shorting amazon in the 2010s is just suicidal and would be the dumbest thing of all time but to only be wrong for $10,000 is you know it's, it's amazing you know so
2: a lesson well learned yeah, yeah. do you so it, it's funny cuz you're the, you're right though people would not put that in the category of their best trade so it's not always about the money it's not always about the profit no or is it
1: no, no. And we're going to talk about the trade that was probably my most profitable of all time, which is one of my worst trades.
2: All right. Well, I have as number 3, it's one of your worst, and that's shorting Canada in 2013.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically, well, you know, the context is that, you know, we had just been through a housing bubble financial crisis and 2011, 12, 13, Canadian housing was going parabolic. It was going vertical. Um, And, you know, there were a lot of parts of it that I missed. I missed the whole immigration piece. But, you know, I I basically was focused on housing prices and I said, this is going to crash. So I I structured this trade. It had three legs to it, okay? And first of all, I shorted the Canadian banks, okay? Um, I shorted... CIBC and TD. And TD I covered pretty quickly, but CIBC I held on to for a while. My entry point was flawless, like shorted the highs. And, you know, I ended up like in price terms over, you know, I held this trade for seven years. I actually broke even on the trade, but I paid out about $200,000 in dividends, maybe more. Like, Because they, they pay huge dividends, so I was short the dividends. So I had to pay like $250,000 in dividends. I shorted the Canadian dollar uh, when it was trading at 103, when Dollar Cab was trading at 103. And that went to 146. I didn't sell it at 146, but I came close. And I made about $700,000 on that. Um, and then what I did was I bought Bax Futures. Okay, so... Bax Futures are bankers' acceptances in Canada. It's like trading euro dollars in Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was convinced that the housing market was going to crash and the Bank of Canada would cut rates to zero. Um, so I had this really – it was too big. I had this monster position in Bax Futures. In 2017, I went on vacation. I went to Paris. And I came back and I got off the plane and I looked at my Bloomberg and – all the banks' features were down like 20 ticks. I'm like, what's going on? Mm. So Carolyn Wilkins, who's the deputy governor, basically telegraphed that they were going to be hiking rates. And I said, so it doesn't make any sense. Like the Bank of Canada is not going to hike rates. Like they're going into a recession. They're not going to hike rates. It's the opposite of what they're going to do. I thought it was bullshit. So not only did I hold on to it, I actually doubled down. Oh. And then they hiked rates. Then they hiked them again. Then they hiked five times. And I was down about seven hundred thousand dollars on this position, and I refused. I refused to capitulate. I was, I was like, you know. And it was funny because I was getting these huge margin calls, and uh, at the end of the year, uh, I got a call from risk management at the bank, and they said, "Mr. Dillion, is everything okay?"
2: And you're like, that's a really good question. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm like, I don't, I'm like, it's everything's under control, everything's fine. So, um, I well, held not, on th- if
2: that's not a wake up call, like quite literally, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, I held on to this until 2020. I held on to it for like two and a half years, and then the pandemic hit, and then rates got cut to zero, and I made all the money back and doubled it. and, it was that whole trade, you know, the, the, sh- the short Canada trade. First of all, the thesis was totally wrong. Canadian housing is still going up. <laughs> and I made more money on that trade than anything I've ever done, being totally wrong and having no discipline and just, just like being terrible. And it ended up being, you know, from a financial standpoint, my best trade, but from a trading standpoint, easily my worst, like no yeah. discipline, no risk control, nothing.
2: So why – so it's so curious that this happens at this point in your career because you're not new. You have the experience. You've shown that you have the discipline before with Amazon. What happened?
1: Uh, I was just – you know what it was is I got too psychologically attached to to the theme. You know what I mean? Like because actually this – particular trade I had done more work on than anything else. I had done, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages of reading. I had read everything about it. I was super smart on it and I was I was just married to it, you know, and I couldn't I couldn't let, I couldn't let go of the idea. It wasn't really a matter of admitting that I was wrong. It was just that I was so convinced that my thesis was right that, you know, that I had to hold on to it. So ultimately, you know, I just, I just got lucky. I just got bailed out by the pandemic. You know, if, if the pandemic, if the pandemic never happened, I'd probably still have it. So.
2: It's such a long trade for a trader to hang on to as well.
1: Yeah, I do have a lot of patience. I have a lot of patience.
2: But you, yeah. but do you don't usually put them on for that long? Do you?
1: Well, not that long, but I usually trade, you know, a six months, year, two years. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Which some people are really, really short term. So you're yeah. you're willing to kind of go in on something longer if you believe it. Yeah. It seems like there's a fine line. What's the difference, or what's the line between conviction and stubbornness?
1: Uh, it's 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 a super fine line. That's all I got to say. There's it's a super fine line. You know. I mean, you know, it's funny. Uh, it, it, some people will say. Um, You know, you just have to admit when you're wrong, but when you do all that work on something and, you know, I don't know, it's just, it was, uh, but like I said, I got lucky, so.
2: Do you think you'd make that mistake again?
1: Yeah, probably. (laughs) (laughs) No, not to that, not to that, not to that extent, not to that extent, so.
2: The longer um, you're in it, the harder it is to get out, right?
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: In one of our earlier episodes, Hugh Hendry, I think, had a similar issue and brilliantly uh, said it was the the arrogance and conceit of a well-formed argument that has sunk him more than once.
1: Yeah, and it was funny because, like, I was also – like, there was this whole – you know, it was kind of like Tesla Q, right? Like, the whole short Tesla guys. There was this whole group of, like, short Canadian housing guys on Twitter that, like – I was all friends with and we were retweeting each other and, you know, and I saw some of them. I actually went up to Canada and met some of these guys and, you know, and, and like, you know, Mark Cahotis was in on it, you know, with HCG and all this stuff. And so you
2: had a community.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And at these times, do you ever, you know, do you have sort of have a conversation with yourself where you're, really kind of putting yourself through the test. Like is there a structure, a litmus test where you say, you know what this is not this is not meeting the criteria, my risk management criteria or, or are you more kind of going by
1: the gut? Well, it's not a matter of really like go by the gut. It's just that you know, I I size my positions according to conviction, okay? And so this was, like, my highest conviction idea, so I sized it appropriately. I made it really big, um, which is part of the problem. And I guess the one thing I've learned from this episode is that I don't trust my conviction as much as I used to. You know what I mean? Because, like, you really – like, even if you're really sure on something, you have to accept the possibility that your thesis may be wrong, you know, no matter how much work you've done on it. Mm -hmm. So – and the market tells you that you're wrong. So you have to listen to the market. And
2: Right. There may be something you can't see. Yeah. That's at play as well. How did you handle the stress of that? I mean, for, for all of those years, knowing that this is one of your biggest trades and it's going really badly, that's got to be sort of like a monkey hanging on your back. How did you deal with that?
1: yeah i remember I remember the summer of two thousand and seventeen. I was really grumpy I was really grumpy, and I actually remember one particular day while this was going on uh I had a subscriber that was like emailing me, and he was kind of being a jerk and i'm I'm very like I'm very polite I'm very cordial like I have good customer service, and I just tore into this guy and then I, then I then I felt worse, then I felt guilty about it and he unsubscribed and I don't talk to him anymore and it was all because it was because of this stupid trade because I was just like, you know, I was just hemorrhaging money and it was it was super stressful. Summer summer of 2017 was really tough. Yeah.
2: And did you recognize it in the moment or is this something that you sort of put this together afterwards like, oh, I was kind of miserable and I was behaving badly and it's actually because of that like did you did you put together at the time that this was causing that or is it only no just afterwards
1: yeah afterwards yeah
2: so am i should i guess that you know vacations up to canada are off your off your radar for now or have you made peace with the whole episode
1: uh i've made peace with the whole episode you know it's funny because every couple of months i'll pull up the charts and say well we wonder if you know, wonder if now is a good time to get back into it. So, are you serious? Yeah. Yeah.
2: The siren call of shorting Canada remains for Jared Dillian.
1: Well, it's actually, you know, it's funny because the banks are up about 100% from where I covered them. Um, and, you know, they're trading it like two and a half times book. And, you know, the housing market just, you know, was just went parabolic. And, you know, I think about it sometimes. So... It'll be, it will be a good trade someday, you know, but this is like, this is nine years since I first started looking at it, so.
2: The timing is, is really hard though, isn't it? I mean, that's the other thing when you're so convicted on these calls, you can have the right thesis, but the timing can be
1: off. Yeah. Yeah.
2: How do you know when the timing's right?
1: Um, I don't know. Um, you know, actually one thing I do today is I kind of rely more on charts, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like back then, I was I was kind of an anti-technical analyst. Like I didn't really pay much attention to charts. So basically my entry point was whenever I felt like getting in the trade. Uh, and I'm a lot more precise with it now, which helps. So,
2: mm-hmm. so has your style been evolving?
1: Oh, yeah. Has it's you- always evolving. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I still like – You know, I'm still ultimately like, I mean, I think at heart people are either mean reversion traders or they're trend traders, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I think you're just born one of the two and you just, you can't change it. And I'm, and I'm a mean reversion trader. So for example, like, you know, now I have a position in bonds, you know, I'm betting that interest rates have topped and are going to go lower, you know, and this is, this is also a tough trade. Um, But... You know, I think I think a lot of people are trend traders. You know, they see interest rates going higher and they say, well, I'm just gonna jump on this trend and it's gonna keep going.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com.
2: So your fourth trade is also one of your worst. This is hilarious. It's shorting Time Warner in late 2013, early 2014. Um, What are the circumstances around this one?
1: So the circumstances were... And it's, this is why this is the dumbest trade of all time. It's not, it's not really like the worst trade because it didn't lose that much money, but it's like the dumbest because there was something wrong with the cable box in my house. I don't remember what it was, but I had to get it fixed. And like, you know, I mean, time Warner cable at the time, like the service was terrible. So you had to schedule it like days in advance and they had like a three hour window when they would show up. So I had to miss like a whole day of work them to show up and fix the cable. And then they never showed up. And then I had to schedule another appointment and they didn't show up for that. So at this point, I'm like, this is a ridiculous company. I'm shorting the stock. So, um, it, but the, but the other thing is at the time, you know, this is like 2014. So if you remember what was happening with the cable companies at the time is that this is the beginning of people cutting the cord, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? So there was a lot of articles about people cutting the cord and, you know, canceling their cable and stuff like that. So that was part of it. Um, well, what I didn't understand was that even if people canceled their cable, they were still keeping their internet, right? So they Mm. still were doing business with the cable company. And the other part of it was, you know, Time Warner Cable was a takeover candidate. So I was short this stock and it was, it was like going up every day. I'm like, what the hell is going on? Um, so, you know, I eventually took enough pain and I covered the short, and I lost like forty grand on it, and like two weeks later, it got bought by Comcast. Mm. So, um, so the like, moral of
2: the story is: do not put on revenge trades.
1: <laughs> do not put on revenge trades. Yeah, I mean, so dumb, so dumb. So,
2: but it's it's, it's fu- it, again there is there's a there's a consistent theme with the ones that don't work out, which is that you you kind of lose your mind and lose your discipline. Yeah, <laughs> at, the, at the risk of overstating simplistically. <laughs>
1: yeah, um, I mean, it was, you know, in retrospect, it wasn't too painful. But you know, the funny thing is, is that uh, one of my subscribers was this hedge fund guy in Connecticut, and this he forwarded he like the the newsletter I wrote about Time Warner Cable. He forwarded it to somebody who was like a cable analyst, okay? Mm. And he responded to the email and then he forwarded it to me. And the guy said like, this guy is the biggest idiot I have ever seen. <laughs> like and like he didn't edit the email. He didn't say like, oh, my friend says this isn't a good idea or whatever. He just <laughs> forwarded it Says this guy is the biggest idiot that I've ever seen. And he called me an idiot like six times. <laughs> and I'm reading this and I'm like- then I was like, maybe I am an idiot. Like,
2: sometimes it's good. It's good to have the truth told, right? (laughs) But it's sort of, it it, earlier you described sort of being decisive though. So sometimes, you know, I guess that's the flip side of being decisive is is being impulsive.
1: Oh yeah. 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 There's definitely two sides to that. Um, you know, but it's sometimes the impulsive trades work too, you know, mm-hmm. like there's, there's times, uh, I'll be sitting here at my desk just like I am right now and I'll pull up a chart and I'll immediately pick up the phone and make the trade. I'll make the decision in like 15 seconds, you know, really? and yeah. And like a lot of times that works out, you know, um, so.
2: How do you stay motivated when you have to kind of dump out of this trade and you're you can see that you haven't been disciplined and you're kind of mad at yourself. How do you stay motivated?
1: Um, you know, one of my theories is or philosophies is that there's always another trade. There's always something to do. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, like the trade of a lifetime comes like once every six months. There's always something. And at the beginning of a trade, when I first put it on, I'm always very optimistic. I never put on a trade thinking that I'm going to lose money. You know what I mean? Like I always, I always think it's going to be a winner. So I think it's important to have that positive attitude. Mm.
2: You you talked about when you when you made the decision to leave Lehman. You just every cell in your body was telling you to do that. You were just so stressed out. Is there something? Do you not feel that working on for yourself? Is there something about sort of being on an institutional trading floor that makes it more difficult or have you just learned how to handle or manage the stress better?
1: Uh, It's a different kind of stress, you know, Um, like the stress I have now is like, it's like water torture, you know, it's really like, so, I mean, I make money when people subscribe and I lose money when people unsubscribe and there's periods of time when more people unsubscribe than subscribe. You know, so like, you know, especially especially this year, because 2020 and 2021, I I just my business exploded. Like I just Mm -hmm. took in, you know, thousands of subscriptions. And this year is, you know, since it's a bear market, it's not been Mm -hmm. as good. So basically, like those subscriptions of that vintage are canceling at a higher rate. So like, you know, yeah, like I come into work and I, I get one or two unsubscribes a day and it it's kind of demoralizing and it's like a different kind of stress, mm. you know, it's a different kind of stress, so.
2: But more manageable.
1: Yeah, it's more manageable, yeah.
2: You've been pretty open about talking about mental health issues as well. And I just wonder how you balance that with being in a really stressful occupation I mean you're exposed to markets some of us can if we don't want to deal uh, you know just turn it off for a weekend or and you, but you but you've got you know people you're servicing how do you how do you deal with that in, in a working in a stressful environment
1: well you know first of all I really like what I do and um, I'm still curious about markets you know what I mean it's still fun I mean there's a there's a part of me that would like to say screw it. Uh, I'm going to sell everything, put it in an index fund and just chill out.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: it's, it's a big game and I enjoy it. And um, uh, and, and you know, I like writing. You know, I, I mean writing is my favorite thing in the world to do. So it's funny because most people don't like writing. If they have something to write, they procrastinate on it. They don't do it. Mm-hmm. Like if I have like three things that I have to do and one of them is writing, I'll do the writing first. Like I really it's, – it's, I enjoy it more than anything. So I still like what I do. Mm. Do
2: you worry about, in this bear market, I think there are so many people who are kind of isolated, right? Everyone's, if they're not working from home, they trade from home. There are some people who do it as a full-time job now, but they're kind of sitting on their own doing it. You know, It sounds like you've found community over the years in different forms uh, to, at the very least, commiserate with. Do you worry about the fact that that seems to be the state we're in. And and do you worry about the mental health of others out there who are kind of dealing with bear markets and these really stressful times, maybe for the first time in their career?
1: Um, you know, it's I I think I think that talking to people is really important, like even before Twitter, like, um, you know, I got I got an, I got a Twitter account in like 2009, but I didn't really start using it till 2011. So what I used to do during the day was just call people and I would force myself to do it. I'm kind of an introvert, but I would like, there were I I would call 10 people a day and keep in contact with them. And nine times out of 10, I would get off the phone and I would have an idea, you know, it's like Mm -hmm. literally like, and I still do that. Like I still call people from time to time. So that's, you know, it, it helps take care of the isolation. When I first started the newsletter, You know, I have this office right now. I got these, you know, you can't see it because I have this background behind me, but I have these nice windows and there's palm trees outside and it's beautiful and I'm in South Carolina. My first office was about 60 square feet and had no windows. I was just in a closet. Like this is, it was in a building on Third Avenue and it was very, very claustrophobic. Now, there were good parts of that. Like I could really concentrate, I didn't have any distractions. Um, But. You know, I had to have contact with people when I was in that office. So
2: So you I don't I think that uh, many viewers of Real Vision and the subscribers to your newsletter will know that you are also a DJ uh, and 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 a successful one. You have a lot of fun at it. Does being an artist you think influence you in any way when it comes to trading or vice versa? Is there a connection between those two passions that you have?
1: Well, it's funny is I actually view myself as an artist, period, like not really as a trader. You know Mm. what I mean? Because trading is an art. It's not a science at all. It's absolutely an art. Um, And it's, it's it's a creative discipline. It's absolutely a creative discipline. And if you think about the people who are really successful, like they're all super, I mean, first of all, like the people who are really good at this job are all weirdos. Like, they're really eccentric people, and they have really, like, different interests, you know? It was funny because uh, I did a podcast with uh, Jeff Sherman at Double Line. Uh, This was over the winter, and I did it in their offices in L.A., and, you know, Jeff Gunlock is an art collector, and I'm walking around the offices, you know, and, you know, I have an interest in contemporary art, so you know i i recognize this painting and i recognize this painting and i recognize this painting we were talking about the art you know i think i think i think it attracts people like that you know
2: that's a great observation because i think a lot of people tend to think of it if not like a science something that is um that you can kind of master get a handle on um and has like sort of rules. and if you do this, you'll be successful. And if you watch this chart and if you figure this out, but the way you describe it sounds very different.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, my my strategy is different than most people. I, I think the markets have resisted all attempts to quantify them over the years. And the funny thing is is that people still try. You know, I wrote that piece about the CFA exam in August of last year which went bananas. Um, but, you know, I, you know, I think the CFA is dumb. You know, I think that people are learning the wrong skills. Um, I think they're mm-hmm. learning how to pass a test uh, instead of actually learning stuff that's useful. Um, so really what markets are is human behavior. And that's why I study human behavior more than anything. And it's not, you know, a lot of people say, well, that's, you know, it's not quantifiable. I'm like, well, it doesn't have to be quantifiable. A science can also be anecdotal, you know, so.
2: I remember you telling me that the first time we did the daily briefing together, uh, that, that that was what was more interesting to you. Um, and that really stuck out for me because uh, you're right. Especially lately, it's all about quant funds and, you know, algorithms and technical trading and letting the computer make the decision.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. I got, so, I'm working on some stuff right now. It's very long-term in nature and uh, it's, um, you know, not to get too deep into the weeds on, you know, the current state of the markets, but, um, you know, basically we have a Fed that is completely intransigent. They're on a path to hike rates to, we don't know where it's going to end up. Um, but I'm getting anecdotal evidence that the economy is starting to slow down. And you're starting to see it in some of the numbers. You're seeing it in the regional manufacturing indexes and stuff like that. So um, basically what I'm betting is that the data will slow down enough and the markets will begin to price in a pause in the rate hikes. And then the Fed will actually capitulate and pause the rate hikes. So it's all about human behavior. Yeah.
2: Did you have... When you when you look back, do you have any mentors or people that that changed the direction of your career or your life or that were important?
1: Uh, I had a mentor. um, I want I don't want to give any identifying details. I had a mentor who had extremely bad luck. He had very, very bad luck. No matter whenever he put on a trade, it would go against him. And he had bad luck in his personal life too, like just extraordinarily bad luck. Um, I worked with him and um, he would make an error and it would go against him and I would make an error and it would go in my favor. And this happened like over and over and over again. Um, So, you know, I consider myself, I think luck plays a huge role. I, you know, just like in the Canadian housing example, you know, I got very lucky, you know, I get lucky over and over and over again. And you want to put yourself in a position where you're positively exposed to luck.
2: How do you do that? How do you know when to do that? I I mean, you know, I think everybody wants to be lucky. How do you attract (laughs) it, right? How How do you put that luck magnet out there, Jared? Tell us. Yeah. Is it a frame of mind? Is it just being open to the possibility?
1: It really is a frame of mind. Yeah, it is. Yeah.
2: I feel it's, it's odd that the, that your mentor is somebody who just had terrible luck though. I mean, how, how is that mentoring to you? Did it just. Well, he's,
1: he's, he's a wonderful human being. He's one of the best people I've ever met in my life. He's a terrific guy. Just very unlucky.
2: Yeah. Well, maybe he's lucky in some things. Yeah. If he's such a nice person. What advice would you give to investors who might be just starting out in their career?
1: Um, gosh uh my advice would be that uh, I hope that your first couple years are filled with failure um you you want to you want to f- fail at the beginning okay uh, so you can learn your lessons before you acquire more capital and you make mistakes and the consequences are bigger you know what I mean so early success is is usually detrimental yeah
2: that's so true. And something I think many of us forget. Jared, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for for being so honest and sharing all of the learnings from your failures. I'm sure it's going to do a lot of people good. And thank you for putting all that great art out into the world. Thank you. Thanks for being on My Life in Four Trades. All right, that's a wrap on this week's edition of My Life in Four Trades. For more on the series, visit realvision.com forward slash my life in four trades. Make sure to use the numeral four. This podcast is a production of Real Vision. Our executive producer is Lisa Desai. Our producers are Frank Fowler and Michelle Ribeiro. Our sound engineer is Levi Mercurio. Our production assistant is Ranjani Vankarakrishnan. And this show is hosted by me, Maggie Lake.